Thanks, Johnny. <clears throat> well, if you're new to Urban Grace, again, my name is Trev, and uh, I have a great privilege of, of being a pastor here and of regularly being able to proclaim God's Word, and uh, most importantly, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to this church family. So welcome, friends. Welcome, families. We know that a lot of you have brought families here this morning, or this afternoon, I guess. Um, old habits die hard, I guess. Um, but it's no surprise that we're at Christmas Eve and we're going to talk about the Christmas story. Everywhere around the world, even if it's at a different place, a different time. You're getting that out of the way there for me. Thanks, my brother. Um, Christians everywhere are celebrating the, the events of the birth of Jesus Christ. There's a lot we could talk about Jesus. A lot. The gospel is, is simple, and yet it's, it's complex at the same time. Uh, it can be told very quickly, and yet it takes years to digest and understand and apply in our own lives. And so it's going to be very difficult to get everything there is to know about the, the, the story of Jesus. But it's, it's Christmas Eve, and so if I'm a decent pastor, I'll talk about the Christmas story. And I want to read the Christmas story for you, and then I want to concentrate on a few particular words that I think are particularly important. And, and to be honest, uh, I, I always hope for really warm, fuzzy Christmas messages, and yet if I look carefully at the Christmas story, it seems that it's filled with tension. It's filled with difficulty. It's filled with this irony. Um, you know, the, I think the Jesus Storybook Bible does a great job, but you expect this great warm, fuzzy story about someone being born in a barn. Like, we've had a lot of babies born here at Urban Grace, and a barn is not the ideal place, if you ask any midwife amongst us. The way that Jesus is born comes with not a lot of fanfare, pomp, so to speak. There's less hype about Jesus in the original story than there is about Connor McDavid before he even steps on the ice for the very first time in an Oilers uniform. It's just so unusual that we have such a merry festive time at Christmas and yet the story itself is in some ways a great tense story. And so I'm going to do my best to retell the story. I'm going to read it from Matthew chapter 1 uh, verses 18 to 25. And this is what it said. You can follow along in your app or just listen carefully if you will. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that is, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child with the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But, he was, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want to repeat that. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. A uh, uh, regular Urban Grace um, attenders will possibly remember uh, a couple weeks ago, but if you're new, I want to catch you up to speed. We're in a small two-part series called Who is Christmas? Not what is Christmas, but who is Christmas? And we've chosen that specific title to just take you a little bit off guard and remind us that Christmas is really about one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And so tonight, I want to talk simply about those particular things, that Jesus Christ, who he actually is. In that passage, you have what he does, you have who he is. And so last week, there was who he is, and this is what he does. So I want to concentrate on this first phrase, and you shall call his name Jesus. And you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 21. Last half or the middle of, you shall call his name Jesus. This is a story that's so full of scandal that it's hard to get away from it if you're examining it carefully at all. I mean, even as I read through this, you're, perhaps you're new to Christianity, perhaps you don't yet believe, perhaps you're just here for a tradition, and I think that's great, I'm glad that you're here with us. But you get stuck on perhaps things like Mary was having a baby, even though she didn't have a husband. In fact, she hadn't known anyone. That's the Bible's cliche word for being together. I think we can all just agree that that's the way we're going to say it in mixed company here. Small children's ears, okay? If you're confused about that, you'll have lots of time this evening to ask your parents all about it. That's my gift to you, parents. But while his mother Mary was betrothed, let's, let's talk about that, betrothed. It's not a word we use a lot. We use the word engagement. But engagement doesn't have these binding factors that it did in those days. In fact, in Jewish tradition, when you were betrothed to someone, that was a legal, that was like signing a legal document. You had about a year before you actually got married that you were betrothed, you were engaged. In some ways, I say this honestly, praise the Lord, those days are gone. One full year where you can't touch one another before you get married. So he's betrothed to her. He's legally bound to her. And yet, very quickly, the text says she's found to be with child. Now, again, if you take yourself back into some of this culture and you understand there's such a shame to this. So he's legally engaged to be married to this woman who's very, very young, he finds out somehow that she's with child. That's how the Bible would say it. But it's not his kid. And according to her, it's not her kid either. It's somebody else's. This is the point in the story where I was like, my favorite conversation when I finally meet God face to face is to ask, when you're a parent of those kids, how does that go, you think? Yeah, well, the baby's not mine. Yeah, well, it's not mine either. Like, I just don't know how this would go well. It's already controversial. How do you get this past anyone? Let's remember that this Joseph would have likely been very um, 
very eager to have a woman of purity, a woman who is noble, a woman who had a virgin. He would have been eager for this. This would, have, this would have been a very noble thing for him to take this kind of wife. And when he finds out she's with child, this destroys everything that he's been working for thus far. At best, he's just going to have a clean divorce on his hands. And in those days, it was very easy to get a divorce. Much easier than it is today. You simply, as a man, sign a piece of paper and she literally goes away. He could have done this publicly, distancing himself from this. He could have said, hey, I just want you all to know that that baby inside of that tummy is not mine and she is, I have nothing to do with her. That's what he could have done. But the text says he actually had the Spirit of God already working on his heart and he decided not to do this publicly. He, did not, he decided not to shame her publicly. Instead, what did he try to do? He tried to divorce her quietly saying, hey, I will sign this slip of paper. She'll go back to her family. Hopefully many people won't ask questions. It's the right, it's the noble thing to do. It's the best possible scenario. And then Joseph goes to sleep. And he has what can only be described as one of the wildest and craziest dreams of all time. Where an angel speaks to him and says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. That's the very thing he is. He's terrified. If I take this woman as my wife, even though she's beautiful, even though I know in my heart that this child is not mine, what will people think of me? Because of my shame culture, all of my friends are going to think, yeah, sure, he's the dad. Yeah, right, not your kid? Mm, totally, I totally believe you. If he divorces her, now he's got the record of divorce on his hands. So what's he supposed to do? Well, he says, I'm just going to do this quietly. Maybe this will go away. God has other plans. Speaks to Joseph in a dream to the point where Joseph believes. I've regularly reflected on the preciousness of Mary and Mary's faith in this Christmas story. How that must have been an amazing sense of faith for her just to take God at his word and to believe that that was true and that somehow she was not drunk and something happened one, late one night. But for it to happen to two people and for them to agree like this, this is a miracle. I mean, the virgin birth is a miracle, but I think it's a miracle that Joseph just took God at his word in a dream. I think the virgin birth is only one of the miracles of the Christmas story. And this is, what, this is what the angel says. She will bear a son. You'll know this is true because he will be a boy. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save people from his sins. Now to tell Joseph to call the baby a name means that Joseph is taking on Jesus, this baby boy, as his very own. It means in some ways he's, he's shadowing what God will do for us. He's covering her shame by saying, now your shame is not just your shame anymore, it's mine too. Even though this child's not mine, I will cover you as though this child is mine. And now you won't deal with this shame by yourself, but we will deal with it together. Joseph doesn't get a lot of, he doesn't seem to be one of the saints that gets raised up, but I, 
I've loved that about seeing this in Joseph this, this year particularly. Now this idea of someone saving someone from their sins doesn't come as a big surprise to them. It might to us. We struggle with the idea of sin a lot in our culture. We don't like to talk about it, and some of you are like, oh no, is he going to talk about sin on Christmas Eve? Yes, I am. Because it's the Christmas message, that's why. But this wasn't unusual for, for a Jew to hear something like this. In fact, they had spent 400 really, really dark years like really dark years. Like there's no record of it in the Bible dark. Like there's a lot of dark times in Israel's history that's recorded, and then there's some times where there's nothing recorded. And this is one of those dark times where nothing is recorded. Nothing has gone well. 400 years. That's longer than some of our countries have been in existence. There's a darkness to this. There's a longing for this. That's why in one of our songs, in sin and error, pining. They're longing for someone to show up and to take this mess and do something with it. 400 years, not decades, centuries of spiritual futility. The fact that someone would arrive to save them from their sins is like a breath of fresh air, not a gloomy Christmas Eve message. It brings about as much hope as anything could possibly bring. This is because in Isaiah, this is how they knew this would happen. In Isaiah, who was the prophet about 400 years earlier, he said that this is how you'll know the sign that God has arrived on the scene and he's at work. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. They knew this was coming. They knew a virgin would give birth. They knew that this would happen. But what they didn't know is how widespread it would actually be and how much hope it would not just bring them as a people, but everyone who would choose to believe in this Jesus. And so now I want to focus on this. For he will save his people from their sins. Joseph's instructions were to name the child. Mary didn't even get to name the child. Mary was told this is what he will be called, but Joseph is given the instructions. This is, you're going to name him. You'll name him Jesus. Now, there's cultures, Latin culture, for instance, that uses the name Jesus very frequently in naming people. It's not an uncommon name. It's not unspiritual to name someone Jesus. I think it's a pretty bold statement in today's culture, don't you think? You name your son Jesus? Well, that's bold. Okay? North American culture. Am I right or am I right? Maybe it's just me. Like, that's a bold statement about what you think your son is like. Imagine the first day in kindergarten. What's your name? Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Real name, please. But it wasn't unusual in Jewish culture at all to name someone Jesus or to name someone a variant of this, Yeshua or Joshua. We call, our, we, we call people Joshua. That actually means the same thing as Jesus. He saves. That's not the unusual thing. They were looking for someone who was going to save. We name people all kinds of things in hopes that they become certain things. I was named Careful Traveler. I was actually born in a car on the way to the hospital, so my parents thought it'd be great. 
True story. The name Trevor means careful traveler. It didn't proclaim that into existence, though, as you can ask my family. Just because you name someone something doesn't necessarily mean that it comes into being. But here is what is amazing is that the angel tells Joseph, you will name him Jesus, which means God saves, which they were expecting. But he will save. You could almost hear the microphone drop in the text. You will name him Jesus because God's the one who's going to save. But here's the crazy thing, the miraculous. It's going to be done through that baby boy. There should be a holy awe when we hear that. Not just that God saves. Again, this is not a unique idea to Hebrew culture. They knew this. If you look at Israel's history, they never stop us from seeing the dark sides. There's a lot of cultures that are not open with their background and history like Israel is. All Jews knew there were dark times. There were disobedient times. They knew if someone was going to clean this up, it would have to be God. It would have to be the ruler of the universe. It would have to be someone who's able to come over top of everything. They had no problem with this idea of God. What they had a problem with is that God would come be just like them. Be, have flesh. He would be born in a stable. He'd be from Nazareth of all places. I mean, it's the equivalent of saying he's come from Edmonton. Right? Nothing good can come from that place. Okay, there's a few... Yeah, there's a, <laughs> few Oiler fans in the crowd. Some of you are awake. They're expecting a little bit more than this. And they're expecting someone to kind of declare themselves and show themselves to be powerful. Not simply to have this kind of fanfare. And all this stuff, I would say, is leading up to this very thing. That he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. It's the Christmas message. You'll actually hear this in malls, in songs. We're still saying these things, but it's not registering to us like it needs to register. How powerful this moment was. How awesome it must have been to get this for the very first time. But you know what? That's because we know the end of the story. In their time, they didn't see this. But what made him such a great Savior? Why can we talk about this with such great power and authority? It's because we know what he does. We know the end of the story already. And we can't even eliminate that from what we're doing. We know that he will save his people from her sins because we've already been shown that he would grow up and then die on a cross and say this very thing. It is finished. I have paid for it all. You know, that's what, when you put hope in a Savior, you don't put hope in them on the front end of your life necessarily. You put it in when they produce. Last week I read what I thought was a very interesting quote about that very person, Connor McDavid. Anyone, everyone kind of generally know? Okay, for those of you who don't know, Turn on the television once every three months and you'll probably pick it up. 
It's hockey phenomenon, right? The quote about him is, if you walk the city streets and skyscrapers of Edmonton, they will tell you that hope comes in the form of a six-foot-one, 175-pound forward, and his name is Connor McDavid. That's on the back of the book. I'm not making that up. That's amazing to me, such spiritual language about a Savior who plays a game. Like, no offense, but plays a game. Not even a mayor. He doesn't even have power. He plays a game, and we're talking this way about our hope in a person, but I tell you, that will all go away if he never produces, won't it? The only reason why there's hope in this guy is what? That he will bring multiple Stanley Cups. That he will bring Edmonton to an all-time hockey high again. If he never accomplishes any of these things, all that hope goes down the toilet. So it's not... (laughs) Thank you. It's not something to just proclaim that he's a savior if he can't actually produce. And so what does he produce? What does he produce? Is this just longing for hope? No. He will save his people from their sins. And this, this is how I want to go at this. I want us to take us time and, and put different emphasis on syllables. Nobody's awake today. We used to say that as kids, right? You put the wrong emphasis on the syllable. So I'm going to put some different emphasis or emphasis on different parts of that sentence. I want to talk about he will save people from their sins. Then I want to talk about he will save people from their sins. And then I want to talk about he will save people from their sins. First of all, he will save people from their sins. He. This is not an ideology. So many of us get mixed up about Christianity, that this is about being a good moral person. And Jesus is this great teacher who tells us all these things we should do and all these things we shouldn't do. And that's not actually what Christianity is about at the heart of it. Any activity that we do as Christians is because we model a person. It's about a person. You have to hear that clearly over and over again. Christmas season isn't about an ideology. It's not about giving. It's not about generosity. It's not about hope. It's about Jesus. Jesus the person. Not his teachings. Although they're part of this. He will save people from their sins. I would say that's That's either a crazy statement or it's true. I don't think there's anything in between on this one. When you start placing everything on someone's shoulders, that's either a crazy statement or it's true. It's not like, well, it's mostly true. Or there's some good points to that. Yeah, he did some good things. Jesus didn't claim to do some good things. He claimed to be your Savior. Whether you believed it or not, He didn't say, if you believe I'm your Savior, I am. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, whether you believe it or not. Those kind of statements you make, either because you're a looney tune or you're right. I'll let you decide. I think as C.S. Lewis said, that's, that's a decision that Jesus didn't give to us, whether or not he's a good teacher. He said, I'm either a looney tune or I'm right. It's really up to you. 
but He will save people from their sins. This is what the Bible would call the gospel. The gospel is the Bible's word that's used in place of the phrase good news, which is actually stolen from the culture around it. This word gospel was often used when you declared things about a king that you had destroyed and now affected the entire kingdom. So if an oppressing king was against you and was oppressing you and, and, and that king was somehow assassinated for the better, you would proclaim a gospel or you would hire people to proclaim a gospel of the king is dead, we're saved. That's where that word comes from. It was a proclamatory word. It wasn't a way of living. It was a, the kind of phrase, the kind of word that affects everyone, whether you, which side you were on or not. If you were on the bad side of that, it still deeply affected you. And the Bible uses this word gospel about this very thing that he will save people from his sins. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Which side of this you're on, it's good news. It's amazing. Secondly, he will save people, his people, from their sins. Now, this is what's so amazing is that, again, Jews... And this was written in a context, this particular book was written directly to Jews. And they're expecting this Messiah to save Jewish people. That's what they're expecting, right? There's an ethnocentricity there that's just pretty normal. They're like, yeah, yeah, of course this Messiah is going to save Jewish people. That's what's been prophesied. But when Matthew writes this, he doesn't write it exclusively by saying his people is in just Jewish people. Because that quote is actually from Psalm 130, verse 8, where it says, He will save Israel from their sins. And Matthew takes that phrase and says, He will save his people. He could have very easily said Israel, but he doesn't. Why? Because Matthew already knows that God is not simply after Israel. He's after anyone who will trust in Jesus. Anyone who will admit, you know what, my way is wrong. Your way is right. The gospel is good news. I am saved from my sins. Anyone. Do you know how much this bothers Jewish people? It's, it's one of the breaking points. You know, I, I read once, from a Jewish scholar, he says, you know, the one thing that really bugs me about Christians is they think the Messiah was for everyone and not just us. And I said, yeah, isn't this the scandalous part of the Christmas message? Is that a Jewish Messiah who was born in a Jewish culture who was, who was born of the line of David, meaning he had a Jewish kingly heritage, that he will save his people those people and anyone who will believe in his name from their sins? Remember, they're thinking politically too. You, you live in 400 years of oppression from a neighboring country or neighboring people where you have no political power. I tell you, all you can think about is, when are we not going to have to pay taxes anymore? Those times have really changed, haven't they? But when you think of Canada being saved, don't you often think of saved from just about everything else but our sins? 
Don't you think, like, we're saved economically? Don't you generally think, like, say, like, let's get that government out of power and get the new government that I like in power? Like, let's get things moving my way? Like, let's get more money donated toward the area of life my way? Like, let's get some real change here. You know, when we talk about real change in our culture, we never say us need the real change. It's always the other person. When we want real change, we want other people to change. And this is exactly the hard part of the Christmas message for everyone who's in this context. Suddenly, he's going to save everyone? Really? That's not fair. We're the ones who had to go through all this dark time. Remember, Israel has seen decades of political fertility as well. And every person who's been a king, who's been amazing, has been the kind of king that's good-looking, powerful. He's got that gravitas. You know? Do you know what gravitas means? It's got that pull. Like, they can tell a king. Like, maybe you've never been in a room where someone has gravitas, and it's just like everyone's kind of looking for them to answer. Like, you'll go and you'll have your family meals tonight, and there will be someone in your family who just kind of has that gravitas. Like, when they speak, it's usually mom or grandma, but when they speak, everyone kind of listens. Right? What they say goes sort of thing. And so that's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who's a good leader, who's dependable, who kind of raises up and has proven himself, not a boy. Every one of their ideal kings has been an adult. Every single one. But when Joseph hears this baby boy, before he even gets out of her body, he will save people from their sins. Amazing. It's an amazing statement. He will save his people from their sins. Thirdly, he will save his people from their sins. Some of you are like, seriously, you're really going to do this on Christmas Eve? You're going to talk about sin? And here's why we're so adverse to this, is we think by not talking about this, we can somehow escape this problem that is in us and in the world. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world isn't exactly in that great a shape. I mean, I feel like we're on the verge of another world war the way things are going on, right? Some people in Germany right now are, this is the worst possible Christmas they're experiencing because somebody just drove a truck into a market. Like, how can we just ignore that there's deep sin in the world at least? Maybe it's not specifically with us, but generally, aren't there problems? Doesn't something need to be done? You know, we hear these Christmas specials and they say, you know, let's, 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 let's move for peace. And I'm like, do you understand that to, to pursue peace, you have to pursue it? And you have to compromise? And you have to talk? And you can't say peace on earth and peace on earth happens. There has to be activity here. Not knowing about our sin does not make it go away. Had something happen to me in December, actually it happened earlier, October 8th. 
at 11.08 a.m. The reason why I know that is I was snapped at photo radar. I, I know I'm the only one in the room who's ever been caught on photo radar, right? We moved previously, so I still had my mail going to the other place, and I actually had a text from the previous person who said, I got some mail here from you, and it's the Calgary Police Service, and I don't think it's good news. I was like, well, hopefully it's like someone asking for, you know, a police check from my church, and this will be great, and didn't know about it, right? Sure enough, $189, 70 in a 50 zone. You know, what's amazing about that is I can never claim, well, I didn't know about it, so I, I guess I don't have to pay it. I guess I don't really have to deal with this because I wasn't really aware that I got into debt. It's not how it works. Yes, there is the responsibility of the Calgary Police Service to tell me that I'm in debt. But essentially, just ripping that up and throwing it in the garbage does not make that debt go away. What does it do? It makes it worse, actually. Some of us, to be honest, this is actually the way we deal with the concept of sin. We rip it up and we stuff it in the garbage. Has anyone ever paid off debt by throwing away their credit card bill in the garbage? Anyone been able to do that yet? Let me know. I'd love to talk to you after and learn some of your methodology. But that's not how it works. How does it work? Well, first you've got to find out what your debt is. And then somebody's got to pay it. Somebody's got to pay it. And the reality is that the Bible describes us like we've all been caught by photo radar, whether we like it or not. That there are ways and things that we have rebelled against God, even if we're ignorant of it, even if we don't realize what the depth of what we have done. It says there's a, there's a debt that you've got to pay for this. You know, sin is described as a lot of different ways, but the best way, I would say, is just missing the mark. It's missing the mark. Maybe you say, well, I haven't done any of the really bad sins. And I would say, but really bad doesn't mean nothing. The Bible describes sin by the things that we do in rebellion against God and what He has said and by the things we know are right that we don't do. Ooh, everyone just got caught on that one. You ever been to the point where you're like, I know I should should go over and talk to that person. Oh, I should send them a Christmas card. I should do something. And you don't do it? The Bible actually describes that's also missing the mark. Because the mark is perfection. You say, wait, 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 wait. Then nobody could get out of this. Yes, now do you see why Israel is longing for someone to step in and save people from this? It's because they know they're trapped regardless of how they feel. They know they have a debt to pay, but they can't pay it themselves because that debt has to be paid with their life, and nobody wants to do that. And this is why it's actually good news. Here's, here's the bad news that you need to hear even on Christmas Eve, is you have an enormous debt that needs to be paid, whether you agree with it yet or not. Here's the great news, is that before you even realized the depth of the debt you're in, A man named Jesus was born to save you from that sin, to pay that debt for you. Imagine my surprise if someone showed up on the scene and said, hey, Trev, I just want you to know you're totally guilty. 
The picture says guilty. My plates are there. They're like, if you'd like to refute this, I'm like, that's my plate. Imagine if someone shows up and says to me, hey, Trev, you're completely guilty, but you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to pay that ticket off and any future tickets for you. Any one of you sign up for that? Any of you want that kind of loophole to just drop into your lap for someone who willingly would say this? Hey, that's just money and that's just a ticket. But we're talking about Jesus who will save us from everything. One of the writers says he will save people from the guilt of their sin. This is the feeling that we get that when we disobey, when we've done something wrong at some point, it's what we feel every one of us has felt guilt. Jesus came to save us from the guilt of our sin. Even though I paid that debt, I am still guilty of speeding. No matter how many times I pay my tickets, I'm still guilty of it. Jesus says, I will rid the record of this permanently. He will save people from the dominion of sin. This is the idea of, of the word dominion is still in the name of our country. It means like this overarching control and power. And that's exactly what sin has in our life. And there's, some of us have such deep-rooted sin in our lives that it just controls us. We have addictions. We have fascinations. We worship things in the wrong way. One of my friends once talked to me about alcohol addiction. He said, it controlled everything that I did. I thought that was fascinating the way he described this addiction. Jesus said, I want to free you from that control. I don't want you to have to make decisions based upon your sin. I want, I want to make decisions for you. I want to help you with this. He comes to free us from the dominion of sin. He comes to save his people from the presence of sin, meaning that this isn't just all that there is, that there is a day when sin will be no more. The Bible does describe that as after our lives. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when this sin does not have this eagle-like claw control over my heart anymore, and I don't have to battle. That would be the best gift in the world. It's not fatalistic at all. Especially when I look at the news, I say, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to eliminate the presence of sin in the world? And Jesus says, I'm coming for that reason. What else did he do? He saves people from the consequence of sin. Ultimately, he says, you don't have to pay the ticket, I will. You don't have to pay for your sin, I will. You should receive death for your sin but instead I will die for you. And that's why the pinnacle of the Christian life is not the birth of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection. Even at the birth, we're already looking toward the resurrection. The cross is empty because Jesus didn't just die, he died, he rose again, showing for us that this is what I have for you. If you will but just exchange your measly little ticket for my life, in my resurrection, I will give you everything that I've earned. And why does Jesus do this? Why does he do this? Because he has to? Because if he doesn't, someone else in the cosmic world will 
chase after him and say, you're not a very nice God. No. God's not insecure like that. Why does he do this? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. Because his love was so deep that there was nothing that he could not give to us. Because even when he, he began to plan before the foundation of this world, he says, I will put a plan into place that cannot be thwarted. That no one can destroy. That no one, no matter how hard they try, can overthrow. Because I will do it. God himself. God with us. The Christmas message is about how God takes care of our sin because he loves us. Because he loves us. As Joel comes and leads us as we close, I simply want us to have an opportunity to respond in, in what we would call worship. Worship isn't singing out loud necessarily. It's part of it. Worship is when you simply say in your heart, God, you're right. God, you're awesome. God, I love that you've done this for me. God, I can't wait to see you face to face. God, I can't wait for you to eliminate the effects of my sin. That's what worship is. And so we invite you to simply ponder this as an opportunity to worship the real king. You can have lots of time this evening, maybe tomorrow with family. I love all that stuff. Hey, I'm at the front, I'm in the front row with all the Christmas traditions. I am like minus three hours from Chinese food and I can't wait. But I think it helps us a lot to simply take a few moments in our day to stand or sit in holy awe at the amazing God who refused to let anything stand in his way, who came to be with us, to be one of us, to pay those sins. And I tell you, as great as this is, it's just a down payment. It's just a down payment. Some of you have put down payments on a house. Cool, good. That's not the best day. The best day is when you pay that house off. That's the best day. Jesus' birth is just a small down payment. His Holy Spirit who helps us live is just a down payment. But I tell you what, let's also not forget that he is coming back. He is coming back and he's going to finish it. He's going to pay the full deal for us. One of the songs I wish we could sing it says this, hallelujah. It's a victory chant, Jewish victory chant. means he wins. Hallelujah, he wins. The Lord of life has come to reconcile the nations, the nations to their God. Hallelujah. He's coming back again to finish what began in Bethlehem.